Good morning. Where are all the sleepyheads? They're all here. <laughs> no. Okay, now some of you might be familiar with Robert Hansen. He worked for the FBI for 22 years. And um, in those 22 years, he was a, a part of a conservative Catholic group. Um, and he had a large family of six. He was involved in the pro-life movement and the NRA. And um, he was considered by FBI as the best computer and wiretapping expert. So that he quickly rose to a high level of authority and power in the system. He was really very well respected by his family, his work associates, and his community. So when it came out that he was a traitor, a traitor to his wife and his children and his country, people were shocked. They just could not believe that this sterling citizen would have done such a thing. Um, he betrayed his wife by having a secret long-standing addiction to pornography. It had several extramarital relationships. Um, he also planted some videos in their bedroom and showed the videos to his friends of he and his wife in the bedroom. So it was shocking when this came out, when he betrayed his wife and his children. And then he betrayed his country by actively spying for the Soviet and the Russian Federation. Now, he had worked 22 years for the FBI, and other than the first three years, he was an undercover agent. And he um, compromised hundreds of our agents, Americans, undercover agents, by... Um, giving away their identification, and giving off information that was very sensitive and um, top secret. So he earned $1.4 million during that time from the KGB. He was finally caught in 2001 after 19 years of betraying his country as a double agent. Now, the sin of betrayal is a horrible sin to ever experience, especially, you know, it's more wounding the closer the person is in your life. And some of you may have experienced betrayal, maybe a betrayal of a, from a spouse or a friend or a co-worker, and it's very devastating when you experience this. Dante, an Italian writer, wrote the classic called Inferno, which means hell. And in this um, classic, he t describes hell as being nine circles, um, and each of these circles got deeper and darker into the earth, and um, people who were living in these circles were in those circles because of unforgiven sin. So they see people that were not forgiven. And the more heinous the sin, the worse, the, the um, deeper they went and down they went. So the ninth circle was like the worst circle to be in. And in there, um, Dante describes um, traitors in that circle. Traitors to family and your country. And so that's where he put him. And so, in fact, um, you know, this was a, an allegory. Dante was escorted by Virgil through this process. So this is not anything real. It's just his imagination and writing down what hell in his mind was like. And there in the center of the ninth circle was uh, Lucifer. And in his mouth, he had three men in his mouth. And they were murderers and betrayers. Um, Julius Caesar, who was betrayed and murdered by his good friend Brutus and Cassius, was in his mouth. And then, of course, Christ's traitor Judas Iscariot. So if you've ever been betrayed, you know it hurts deeply. But maybe you've been someone who has betrayed another. Now, Jesus experienced betrayal. Um, the last week, 
you know, we celebrated communion. And whenever we celebrate communion, we will read a text from the scripture. And uh, most of the time, the Last Supper starts with a recounting Jesus' betrayal. For instance, 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance and remembrance of me. You know, as part of our celebration of communion, we rehearse the betrayal of Jesus through Judas. Now, we've been in a series called Inspired by the Story, and in this series we've been looking at men and women who have inspired us and stirred us to want to be more like Christ, to desire to surrender more to the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, today we're going to look at a couple of men who betrayed Jesus. And even in their story, there's inspiration for us in our walk in wanting to become more like Christ. So this morning I just pray that this message goes well. Papa, as we've looked at um, men like Abraham and Job and Joshua, Lord, and we've looked at some of the women, Naomi and Ruth and Mary and Sarah, Lord, their lives are really like ours. It's just ordinary people with the ability and the capacity to choose. And Lord, we see in their lives something that draws us to want to be different. And I pray, Lord, that as they responded to the circumstances of your life, their lives, Lord, that you would help us to respond to the circumstances of our lives with you in mind. Lord, I pray for your spirit to come and that this message, Father, would release power, your power in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the passage we're going to look at is from John chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Okay, Jesus, having prayed this prayer, left with his disciples and crossed over the book Kedron at a place where there was a garden. He and his disciples entered it. Judas, his betrayer, knew the place because Jesus and his disciples went there often. So Judas led the way to the garden, and the Roman soldiers and police went by the the high priest and the Pharisees followed. They arrived there with lanterns and torches and swords. Jesus, knowing by now everything that was coming down on him, went out and met them, and he said, Who are you after? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, That's me. The soldiers recoiled, totally taken aback. Judas, his betrayer, stood out like a sore thumb. Jesus asked again, Who are you after? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you said Jesus, that's me, I'm the one. So if it's me you're after, let these others go. Now this encounter happened on Thursday, um, the night before um, his betrayal, before his crucifixion. And in some of the accounts of the Bible, the garden is referred to as a grove or an olive grove. But here in this account, it's just simply garden. Verse 1. Jesus, having prayed this prayer, left with his disciples and crossed over the brook Kedron at a place where there was a garden. 
Now, in those times, um, people had gardens in their homes that lived within the walls of Jerusalem, but the wealthy also had gardens outside the walls of Jerusalem, and they would build these big gardens and then these high walls around them to protect them from you know, predators and animals and stuff. And they often would put a name or some kind of title on that wall, and probably this one was probably an olive grove, probably was the name of it. So Jesus enters into this familiar garden to rest and pray. And it probably belonged to one of his friends or his disciples. And it was a favorite spot. So that's why Judas had an easy time locating Jesus because he knew where he liked to go. Now N.T. Wright um, in his commentary makes the observation that some very important things happen in gardens. And those of you that are familiar with the Bible, you're aware that sin entered into our world in the Garden of Eden. When our parents uh, sinned against God, sin entered into our world. Now, you know, some of us sometimes ask, why are things so messed up? You know, why do so many teenagers rebel from the parents? Why are there so many divorces? Why are so many people, you know, troubled with depression? Why is there so much crime? The world the way it is, is not the way God created it. He didn't want all these distortions and pain. But sin entered into his world through a choice made by humans in a garden. Now, what happened in this first garden, according to N.T. Wright, made what happened in the second garden inevitable. As we read in John 18, what was inevitable was necessary necessary because of the sin done in that first garden. And then there's the third garden, And actually, Randy's going to be talking about that third garden in a couple of weeks when we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. But as it relates today, in my message today, in John 20, when Mary goes back to the tomb and finds the tomb empty, she's in a garden. And in that garden, God takes control of what happened in his first garden. And the healing of our world begins. So Wright talks about significant gardens, three of them, and then three questions that God asks in these gardens. So when a search party is led by Judas Iscariot, followed by Roman soldiers and by religious leaders, Jesus approaches them in verse 4 with this question. Who is it you want? Literally, who do you seek? You know, this is a really good question to ask ourselves. Who do we seek? What do we want? Who are we after? The first search party recorded in the Bible was in the first garden when God is searching for his children, Adam and Eve. And you might ask when he said, where are you? Like, duh, you're God. You know everything. Why are you asking that stupid question? And it isn't that God doesn't know the answer. It is that God is so full of mercy and so full of love that he's desirous of us connecting with the fact that we're gripped and we're hiding from him. 
Where are you? And he's still asking this question, where are you? What do you seek? What are you after? You know, this question, where are you? First, the question that Jesus would ask in the second garden, and it's eventually is the question he asked in the third garden. And he's still asking today, where are you? Who are you after? What do you want? So in the first garden, God is seeking. And, you know, we hide from God, don't we? We get uh, ashamed when we sin, and we feel like we need to hide from God. So we avoid God by not praying anymore. Uh, We show up late for worship because it's a little bit too intimate. We stop going to church or stop going to community groups. We deflect, we rationalize, and we defend. And we remove ourselves from things that remind us of God, and we become busier and busier and pursue more and more stuff in order to fill a void that can only be filled by relationship with Christ. So I'll have another relationship. I'll have another drink. I'll take one more movie, one more game, one more shopping spree so that I don't have to feel and ask myself, where am I with God? Where are you is a question God asks each one of us here this morning. So I just want to pause right now and let him ask you, what are you after? So we hide sometimes because of sin and we're ashamed. Maybe we even said, you know, there is no God. Or sometimes we hide because we are just downright angry at God. Things have not turned out the way we expected, what we deserve, what we wanted. He hasn't answered our prayers like we expected him to. And so you're mad and you're bitter towards God. You look at your circumstances and you hate your life. I hate my marital status or my lack of marital status. I hate my body. I hate my job. I hate my life. And it's your fault, God. So where are you with God? Are you close to God? Are you at peace with him? Are you drawing near to him? Or are you finding yourself distancing and further and further away from him? And you find yourself beginning to fill your life with activities in order to saturate that space with other stuff. So in verse 4, Jesus is asking the questions to the soldiers and to the religious leaders. Who are you after? Literally, who do you seek? And you know, and it's clear that they are not seeking for the Jesus who said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. They're not looking for that Jesus. They're looking for someone that they can attack, someone they can blame, and someone that they could kill. They did not come with the intention to bow down to Jesus and to say, you are what I've been looking for my entire life. You know, many people who seek Jesus are not seeking him out to see if he is the truth. They're looking for someone because they, want, they have a bone to pick with God and they want to blame somebody. Look at this. You look here in Matthew and the garden is called Gethsemane. And Mark is called the Mount of Olives. If you look at Luke, it's called the Grove of Olives. And then John 
doesn't even mention the name. He just calls it a garden. I mean, seriously? In Matthew, the high priest gets his head, his ears cut off, and no mention of it being healed. But in Luke, who was written by a doctor, talks about how Jesus healed his ear. I mean, are you really going to do, what are you going to do with those discrepancies? You know, people who have asked these kinds of questions and people who are looking for answers of whether or not the Bible is true, I would have to say to them, you know, there's a lot of great books written on that topic that are entirely committed to answering those questions. Really great books. But when we talk to people, not every one of those questions. Talk to you and they ask you those kinds of questions. It's not like those haven't been answered. Like, wow, we have been waiting for you to be born because no one's ever thought to ask that question. You know, their arguments and their questions are not going to blow up the veracity of the Bible. Now, someone I read it, F.F. Bruce, has a wonderful classical work on the reliability of the New Testament. Paul Barnett is another author who has written about the historical Jesus, one that's more easy to read would be The Case for Jesus by Lee Strobel. And in this account, he documents his spiritual journey from an atheist to a follower of Christ. He used to be a, a highly paid editor for the Chicago Tribune. And so in that place, he knew how to cross-examine people and did that to a dozen or more of, um, from schools like Cambridge and uh, Princeton. And he talked to authorities of the field. And he challenged them with these three questions. One, how reliable is the New Testament? Two, does evidence exist for Jesus outside of the Bible? And three, is there any reason to believe that the resurrection was an actual event? So if we're looking for honest answers, there are great books that people can read. But some people are not seeking for answers to their questions. They're looking to blame God or blame the church. They're looking for grounds to reject him, to reject the church. I mean, sometimes, particularly now as we're in the year of uh, elections for our president, sometimes it's a political agenda and sometimes it's a personal agenda. You know, a student might reject um, our faith because, you know, they say, you know, Claire, if I were to listen to you, and if I was to do what Jesus talks about, I would have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. And I'm not really ready to do that. You know, but I believe a truly moral person who's asking good questions and really seeking to find the truth and is not blocked by some kind of agenda, they will find Christ. So we're at the third party and in, in this third garden. There's a, a garden, a similar question is asked of Mary. <coughs> John 20, verse 14, Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? Now, the difference between the, these first two, the two groups in the second garden and the third garden is that Mary is seeking for the one that she loves. She's seeking for truth, and she finds the resurrected Jesus. And that's where we will end up if we're truly seeking for Christ. When a seeker says, I, my life is a mess, things have got to change, I need help, they find that there is this wonderful God and the power of the Holy Spirit to help them. So, if we are seeking, 
there's a great verse that I think we should put to memory to remind us when we are seeking. Jeremiah 29:13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So it says we're going to find God. We will find him when we're seeking him. So how are we going to account for the betrayal of Judas? Gosh, Judas was there with him for three years. He saw the miracles. He saw the multiplication of the food. He saw Jesus and Peter walk on the water. He heard sermon after sermon from probably the best preacher anyone's ever heard. How is it possible to be that close and to resist the love of Christ? How is it possible that Judas would turn around and stab Jesus in the back? Now, I don't really think that Judas was a double agent when he first signed up to be with Jesus. I think he's a lot like married couples, right? They want it to work. When they're walking down the aisle, I don't think the guy's thinking, I'm going to have an affair. And I don't think the gal's thinking, in three years we're going to get a divorce. They're not thinking that. They're thinking to stay in love, to walk in love, to live in love, till death do us part. And me walking down this aisle is my commitment to do that with you. So I don't think that Judas had this great scheme that I'm going to stab Jesus in the back. I just think things happened, just like they happen in marriage. We get disenchanted, discouraged, we get hurt. I never intended to have an affair. It just happened. You know, they plan on keeping their vows. And something happens. And something happened to Judas. Now, some people have said that Judas had a political agenda when he joined up with Jesus. And obviously, Jesus did not have a political agenda. And some think that Judas was trying to force Jesus to finally fight So he just created this situation in the garden. So now, Jesus, you've got to pick up the sword and you're going to have to fight. And some feel that Judas was angry, that Jesus wasn't doing anything. Why aren't you leading us into battle? How can you live with the oppression of your people? How can you stand there and do nothing and be passive while your people suffer? You know, that sounds like a prayer that some of us have said to God. How can you stand there and do nothing while I suffer, or my child suffers, or my father suffers? So the Bible doesn't really tell us that any of those things were Judas' motivations, but it does tell us two things. One, he had a problem with greed, and two, he had seared his heart one too many times. He became callous and hardened one too many times. So there's a count in the Bible of a woman who poured a bottle of expensive oil over Jesus' feet. And Judas gets upset. Mary came in with a jar of very expensive aromatic oils, anointed and massaged Jesus' feet, and then wiped them with her hair. The fragrance of the oils filled the house, and Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, even then getting ready to betray him, said, Why wasn't this oil sold and the money given to the poor? It would have easily brought 300 silver pieces. He said this not because he cared two cents about the poor, 
but because he was a thief. He was in charge of their common funds, but also embezzled them. Jesus said, let her alone. She's anticipating and honoring the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you. You don't always have me. And then in Mark, the other count gives us a little bit more things that I want to talk about. This perfume could have been sold for well over a year's wages and handed out to the poor. They swelled up in anger, nearly bursting with indignation over her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you giving her a hard time? She has just done something wonderfully significant for me. You will have the poor with you every day for the rest of your lives. Whenever you feel like it, you can do something for them. But not so with me. She did what she could when she could. And she pre-anointed my body for burial. And you could be sure that wherever in the whole world the message is preached, what she just did is going to be talked about admiringly. This was too much. So Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the cabal of high priests, determined to betray him. They couldn't believe their ears. They promised to pay him well, and he started looking for just the right moment to hand him over. Is it possible that Jesus would be betrayed for such a base thing? Money. Greed. You know, I love our country, but if there's one sin that we all wrestle with, it is the sin of greed. We all struggle with it. I mean, how many more storage units need to be built? Why do we have so many outlet malls? Why do we walk through the malls? We're not going to buy anything just to see if maybe I'm missing out on something. Why do we bother looking online at all the photos of stuff that are inspired by our shopping trends? I wonder what's new. I wonder if I'm missing out on anything. I mean, how many of us here can say, I don't buy more than I need? We buy more than we need for enjoyment or entertainment. We buy another pair of black shoes, tools, musical equipment, clothes, furniture, kitchen, equipment, toys for our kids. Is it possible that one would betray our beautiful Jesus for greed? Yes. People have betrayed their country for greed. For greed. Christians resist tithing because of greed. You know, in our Western culture, there's a teaching that's been pretty popular, and it's fine distorted, at times okay. It's called prosperity teaching. You know, if you give of your salary, God owes you money. Why does that kind of teaching appeal to us? Because it finds a home in our hearts. So I don't know when Judas' heart finally got so hardened, but we do know he had a problem with greed, and we do know that at some point he hardened his heart. And I don't know when it is that we cross that line. Our continual resistance to God's love and his commands when it finally has a place in our soul. But I believe there is a point 
when we keep saying no to God, no God, no God, no God, and finally we get, we get our way and we become callous. I mean, how is it possible that people come to church and hear pretty good, okay messages with application and challenges and thought to live on and not change? It's because we've said no to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the wooing of the Holy Spirit to repentance. And when we do that over and over and over, something happens to our soul and something gets broken. How many times can we take from God's people and take advantage of our parents and accept their help and say, you know, their help, their care has no connection to a loving God. Something hardens inside us. How many times are we going to look at a sunset and not acknowledge that our God is behind that beautiful sunset? How can we come to church and not change? I'm not going to listen. I'm going to play with my little device here. And I'm not going to apply this message. I'm just going to sit and not respond. And then we become callous and we stop responding to the wooing of Jesus. So Judas had one last no, one last hooray. And it happened when Jesus rebukes Judas for ridiculing the woman for honoring him. And Jesus challenges Judas and tells him to leave her alone. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you giving her a hard time? She has just done something wonderfully significant for me. You will have the poor with you every day for the rest of your lives. Whenever you feel like it, you can do something for them. Not so with me. She did what she could when she could. She pre-anointed my body for burial. And you can be sure that wherever in the whole world the message is preached, what she just did is going to be talked about admiringly. So Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the cabal of the high priest determined to betray him. This was Judas' last no to Jesus. It was the time that the evil one took charge of his heart. Judas had hardened his heart and hardened it and squeezed Jesus out of it. Over and over he had refused to yield to the loving presence of God's invitation to change and to have his heart, God's heart. So when does it happen to us? I don't know. But we can read it where and when it happened to Judas. By the time that Jesus offered Judas the bread at Passover, Judas' heart was already given over to the evil one. He was too far gone. Satan had entered his heart, and Judas had closed his heart to Jesus. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world to go to the Father. Having loved his dear companions, including Judas. The reason why I can relate to this story is because I know of a God who loved me when I was in sin. And so, no, I didn't do what Judas did. But I have my own story. You have your own story. And he loves you in your story. In the story... In your crap that you're in right now, he loves you. 
In your brokenness, he loves you. He continued to love them right to the end. It was supper time, and the devil by now had Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, firmly in his grip, all set for the betrayal. You know, Judas came to a place where he wasn't just pressed by Satan. He was a tool of Satan. It is through the repeated nose to God's love that Judas came to this place. He had opposed God's way one too many times. So let's look at the other friend that betrayed Jesus. I talked about two friends, and this one was Peter. So how are we going to account for Peter's betrayal? Peter, the one that had faith to actually walk on the water. How could he deny his best friend? So my thoughts on this is I think Peter wasn't totally committed to Jesus quite yet. He was still holding on to something that he wasn't ready to give up. Peter was partially embracing the message of Christ. But the part that that Peter did not really embrace was the suffering part. I like the victorious Jesus. The king. The one that multiplies bread. The one who heals. I like that. But Jesus suffering? No. You're God. You will be victorious. The suffering stuff? No way. And Jesus knows he has to suffer and be crucified because it was unto something. And so he rebukes Peter. Why? Because he just wants to correct him? He wants to shame him? No, I think it's because he sees, Peter, your theology is screwy. And it's blocking you from seeing what Jesus is going to do through suffering. Jesus sees that Peter's theology is a problem for him. And so he wants to set Peter free, and he wants to set us free from the fear of pain and suffering. So he takes the time to rebuke Peter. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's rebuking God. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus sees right through Peter's zeal and his unsanctified passion, and he tells him like it is. You are talking for Satan right now, Peter. You've got to let this go. This avoidance is not going to go well for you. You know, I really don't like pain. I mean, do you? I I don't like to suffer. I think I'm normal, at least in this. But if avoiding pain and suffering causes me to disobey God or to blame God, it is an idol and I have to let it go. Our society encourages all forms of painkillers. And I'm I'm not saying that to take two Tylenol for a headache is a sin. Or a fever. I'm not saying that. But when we continually reach out for substances or activities or another sexual experience to numb our soul, avoid the pain of loneliness, 
and a brokenness in order to cope with our sadness, something is terribly wrong inside. When we're so entrenched in an addiction that the idea of praying for a merciful God to set us free is totally out of the question, something's broken. Now, in the book, People of the Lie, written by Dr. Scott Peck, he interviews one of his patients, and this patient's actually made a pact with the devil. And the pact is, if my son sins again in this way, then you have all the rights to kill my son. And Dr. Peck says, so you made a pact with Satan that he could kill your son? He was horrified. And the dad said, well, yeah, I did have a few little feelings of the guilties. And the doctor just said, just wait a minute. You know what your problem is? You're a quitter. Your whole entire life, you have quit when things got difficult. You quit music classes because it was too hard. You quit college because it was taking too long. You walked out of your marriage because it was difficult. You just are walking away and avoiding pain. Now, you know, we can cut corners. We, we can try to get away with things, and we do. Bending the rules, cheating a little bit, it's okay as long as you don't get caught. Is it? Is that really okay? Is that the mark of a follower of Christ? Peter is choosing the easy way out rather than the right way. And so we can read how Peter denies he ever even knew Jesus when he was questioned. Peter was partially committed to Christ. And Peter is overly confident about what he could handle under fire. And so he boasts, even if everyone else falls to pieces on account of you, I won't. Don't be so sure, Jesus said. This very night, before the rooster crows up the dawn, you will deny me three times. Peter protested. Even if I had to die with you, I would never deny you. I mean, why would he predict this to Peter? He knows Peter. He sees his heart. He sees our hearts. And he sees a self-confident man who is unaware of what's in his heart. How about us? How aware are we of our own weaknesses? You know, we believe we're beyond temptation, beyond hardening our hearts. If we believe that, we're in danger. Jesus didn't challenge Peter to shame him or to make him afraid. He was trying to strengthen Peter by saying, Peter, you're weak. You need to become more self-aware of what's going on in your heart. You know, maybe everyone else who dates outside of their faith ends up falling in love and getting married to an unbeliever. Maybe 999 out of 1,000 will do that, but I won't do that. I'm beyond that temptation. I don't have that problem. You know, I may have a problem keeping my hands off of my girlfriend, but we can lay down on the sofa after 11 o'clock and we won't have sex. We test God, and some of our problems that we have, we test God by saying, I don't have that problem. You know, some have problems with pornography, right? I don't need filters. You know, it doesn't matter that my wife's asleep and I stay up for hours to do what I'm going to do. We test God. 
I go to the mall and hang out. I'm not going to spend money even though I'm to the debt. Crazy. What are you doing? What are you doing hanging out with the guards and warming your hands on the fire, Peter? And Jesus even told you. He warned you you would deny him. What are you doing? What are you doing hanging out with your drinking buddies, with your drug buddies? I won't drink. I'll just have one. I'm just warming my hands by the fire. Now, the difference between Peter and Judas is this, as I see it. Both failed Jesus in a terrible way. But one understood the mercy of God. When all said and done, Peter believed that it was the Christ that would save him. That his mercy was bigger than any sin he could ever commit. But Judas, on the other hand, he was done with Jesus. In fact, he took the last thing that he could do that God had given him, and it was his life, and he committed suicide. Folks, there is mercy for us wherever we are. It's never too late for us to turn and become like Peter, who knows that he had a merciful God. Okay. That's where I want to end. We have a merciful God, y'all. And if there's stuff that's hidden in you and broken that you want freedom from, it's available. Well, Cindy McBride, she has uh, something to share. You could use that mic over there. This morning, during prayer time, um, we have this verse, which I'll share with you. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. So as we meditated on this verse, uh, the word verdict came out to me. And so the verdict is out for us. It's out. And isn't that wonderful? Hallelujah. God has given us probation. That's what we feel like. That if I didn't get that death sentence, but if I do okay and work hard enough and obey the rules and don't mess up, and my probation officer is not going to get me, or if I do a little bit, maybe he won't see it. (laughs) But um, God has given us probation, so hopefully that probation officer upstairs isn't going to see me. Mm. Or, I don't know, I might get that death sentence. But, you know, as I look at this verse, the verdict, there was either death or there was life. And probation was not one of the options. So we have a choice to walk in the life that Jesus has given us. And that's called a pardon. So we can choose the pardon, but let's not walk in probation. 
That's not what a pardon is about. Thank you so much. So I want us to stay sitting unless you feel like you want to make some kind of demonstration or agreement with the Holy Spirit that I, I've got stuff going on in my life that's a problem. And I want some freedom. Uh, I am going down a path that is leading me in a path, direction that I'm not happy about. It's not facing God. And um, I want to. I want to face God. In this area of my life, maybe you're following God in some ways, but there's an area of your life you're not. And I, my invitation is, church, let's get cleaned up. Let's, be, let's let the Holy Spirit clean us up and set us free. There's no shame. Jesus isn't into shaming us. He's into liberating us through his love. We have a merciful God. And his soft spot in his heart is repentance. When we repent, we're freed. In his head, we're already free. But we have an unfreed because we're in that place, the stuck place, like Cindy was saying. So if, you know, and... I don't even want to hear your stuff. I don't want anybody to hear your stuff. But if there's something in your life you're thinking, this has got to stop. So just stand and let the Holy Spirit set you free. Oh, sweet Jesus. Set us free. May your mercy wash over your people. May your love cleanse like rivers. Cleanse us, Lord. I love you, daughter. I love you, son. And I receive you. And I say you're free. You're free from where you're tied up. I said you're free. You're free. Like a bird out of a cage, you're free. So sing. Sing your heart out. Dance. Dance unashamed. Walk and know that I'm your God. 
and you are my child. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Um, if you would like prayer for other things going on in your life, then there will be people up here that would like to pray for you and minister to you. Okay? Sound good? All right. And remember, in two weeks is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. That's going to be a nice day. It's when it all comes together, why we do what we do for our beloved Jesus. Okay. See you next week.